You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is August 11th, 2022. It's 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And, whoops, that's Lucy's contribution. What are you barking at? (laughs) I thought it might be interesting to go back and touch into a conversation around attachment, uh, uh, attachment and meditation. Um, I mainly think of the meditation piece as uh, part of the way in which we learn to mentalize and particularly uh, to emotionally regulate. One of the things about the experience of this human body that we grow up in is that we learn uh, about ourselves really as as a reflection from somebody else. So when we're born, um, we're sort of undifferentiated and uh, as the brain develops, we make an attachment to our caregiver, and they reflect back to us in their experience of us what we know about ourselves. And so uh, if you had uh, caregivers who delighted in you and thought you were the bee's knees and everything you did was remarkable, that's the reflection of yourself that you looked at. And if you had caregivers that weren't uh, resourced in this uh, well enough uh, and uh, the experiences uh, that they had of of being responsible for taking care of you were burdensome for them then what you may notice is that the reflection that you have of them of yourself or this idea of yourself may be that you're too difficult or you're too much or you're too demanding and that isn't related to the inherent nature of yourself it's related to the experience of your caregiver taking care of you Um, because we um, form these uh, identities so early before there really is any recognition that any of this is happening um, to us uh, we really can develop this very solid sense of self which is really a reflection of someone else. Um, One of the things about uh, uh, caregivers who were sensitive enough and interested enough in us that they they were able to discover in their experience of us things that we enjoyed, things that we were good at, uh, and they tend to encourage those. So we have this idea of ourselves as Uh, delightful and and good at some things and prefer some things over others. And this is really useful if we had the caregivers that did that for us, because then we really do have a, it's kind of a a jump forward, uh, because we have uh, an understanding of the things that we like, the things that we can do, that we find enjoyment in doing. And if if you didn't have that reflection, some people have uh, caregivers that insist that you do what it is that they think is appropriate for you to do. And so you take those on 
uh, as a sense of obligation and a sense of self-identity. And the things that you would enjoy or the things that you were good at, if they were different than that, are left unattended uh, to, un undeveloped. Um, mentalizing is a, uh, an idea of be being able to track what's actually happening, and be able to understand how we understand what's happening, formulate a way of responding to what's happening, uh, taking an action in response to what's happening, and then collecting the information about what happened in response to the action that we took. If we can't mentalize fast enough to track all of those pieces, then we're simply reacting. We're not really able to make a, a choice about how we respond. And so we begin, uh, uh, if you have a focus of using meditation uh, to develop mentalizing, beginning to track those pieces individually, uh, particularly in the Theravada Vipassana side of things, track those um, pieces of experience as they happen. Uh, you have the capacity to sense the five senses plus mind. You have objects that can be sensed. When there's contact, a consciousness of the sensing experience arises. It's unfixated, undifferentiated, and uh, unconscious. So we have a little confusion with uh, the, the nature of the English translations of these words uh, from Pali, but we don't know the experience of sensing because it happens before it enters into conscious awareness. But we say in, in uh, Buddhist thought that the consciousness of the sensing experience arises at contact. Uh, it's evaluated for processing speed, which we also don't typically know because it happens before conscious awareness. Does it need urgent attention? Does it not matter? Uh, is it pleasant? And do, if we have time, can we engage in a pleasant uh, experience? And then uh, that uh, hierarchy of order is compared to the perceptual database where the previously identified sensing experiences are stored. And if there's a close enough match in that, the undifferentiated sensing experience becomes uh, conceptual awareness. So ultimate real reality converts into conceptual reality. And then we have in front of us the experience in conscious awareness of what's going on. Can you understand in the moment as it's unfolding in conscious awareness, the creation of conceptual reality that you've made? Can you understand the roots uh, in terms of the experience of what formed that perception? Uh, and uh, can you uh, touch into ultimate reality and validate the accuracy of the presentation that you're experiencing? before you form the intention and take the action because if you can't do that you're still reacting but the buddha described this in different ways one of the one of the um, metaphors he used which is, i quite liked is that the farmer goes into uh, his hut to put away some tools it's dark he sees in the corner a snake he takes his machete and he chops it up and he lights a candle and see 
sees in the corner a rope that he'd chopped up. Because in the moment of coming into the hut, he actually created the experience of a snake, not of a rope. And then he reacted instantly to the, to the experience of that. So can we begin to see that? If you can mentalize fast enough, what you begin to uh, open for yourself is the opportunity to examine the working model of self and then the working model of others. From the Satipatthana Sutta, it's described as mindfulness of inside and mindfulness of outside. And then mindfulness of inside and outside. And when you look at the hierarchical lists of uh, spiritual development, um, let's see if I can find it. I have one of those minds that remembers lists out of order and always uh, uh, incompletely. <laughs> and I think one of the fun things about my mind is it, it doesn't remember, it, it doesn't always leave the same one out. So if there's six items on the list, each time I remember it, it's a variation of the six, but not complete. So mindfulness of inside and mindfulness of outside. And this is a list that Dan Brown and uh, Ken Wilbur and, and um, Angler came up with. Uh, awareness of the state of mind of self or other. So mindfulness of inside is your own mindfulness of other of the other is uh, mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, outside is the other. Monitoring for the accuracy, that's that, Tasha Panati is the Pali word for that, that back and forth. Um, and then the awareness of uh, one's own fluence on another state of mind and another person's influence on your state of mind is mindfulness of inside and outside. So you perceive something in an exchange with someone else based on your definitions in your database. If you know somebody well, what you also might know is their definitions of the same thing. And you have the capacity to mentalize or compare your definition and how you understand it and their definition and how they understand it. If there's enough space, you can respond in a way that includes their definition so that they're more likely to understand your response than if you're just reactive and you use your definitions. One of the things that happens to people is they get stuck on their own definitions of things uh, and uh, so that they're not actually engaged in something that communicates the meaning they understand the words in their definitions uh, and can't recognize that actually the meaning that they're that that it's being offered is different because it's created in somebody else's definitions. Um, the sense of self arises. We have these working models of the sense of self and what uh, what that really means is that we have a uh, remembrance of the uh, reactions of other people to our presentation in the world and we collect them together 
and then that forms this sense of self-identity that we have. If you had a sensitive enough caregiver who reflected back to an accurate, uh, maybe accurate, who reflected back to you an interested, engaged, accurate uh, understanding of you, then you have a more accurate, uh, my mind is still being bothered by accurate. If you, if you respond in a spontaneous way and your caregiver understands that and then responds to you in a way uh, where they get it right and they actually take care of you in a way that's meaningful to you, then you have a sense of being able to create an impact on the world. It was, it, that's actually the source of confidence that I'm able to express myself in the world responds to that in a way that meets my needs, creates this cycle of confidence. But it really means that you have an effect. If you express yourself and you're misunderstood uh, and the response is actually not that useful to you, then you don't develop that sense of confidence, of confidence in your own competency because you cannot create the effect in the world that you want and all of these experiences of doing that are collected together uh, into this uh, working model of self which is activated in response to the conditions of the present moment um, it's an it's an organizing of experiences When you're able to mentalize well enough, of course, the, the working model of self activates and you're able to uh, relate to it in a way that has a regulating effect um, emotionally. And if you can't uh, mentalize well enough, you won't know what to do in order to uh, regulate the experience of the present moment. So we call that uh, self-regulating strategies which we mainly learn from our uh, caregivers. So if you grow up uh, in a typically good enough environment, you're going to have some that work well, some that are okay, and some that don't work well. And as you go through this process of practice and examining how you do it, you can begin to eliminate the unskillful approaches and foster the uh, beneficial approaches and then also learn strategies that you might need where there's a deficit of skill and being able to regulate. But if you can't mentalize that uh, and mentalize it fast enough, then uh, you really are subject to the, the waves of emotional experience that you have. One of the things that you may notice as you begin to examine this is that your capacity to mentalize uh, and your uh, capacity to regulate your emotional experiences are linked that if you're good at regulating your emotional experience you have a lot of capacity to mentalize and if you can't regulate your emotional experiences your mentalizing begins to collapse so we want to pay attention uh, to uh, the regular regulating effect that thinking can have on the emotional experience and develop skills to be able to do that 
Um, in Theravada practice, there's a lot of focus on self and no self. And so a lot of the meditations uh, that you engage in uh, reveal the sense of self and also deconstruct it in a way. Uh, and that can be quite useful. I think one of the, the, the joys of Western meditation practice, of course, is that we, uh, particularly in the United States culture, uh, where we tend to appropriate uh, parts of things and, uh, and assemble it into a new whole uh, most of the time without accrediting <laughs> without crediting anybody uh, but uh, we collect the different strategies uh, and create these systems um, uh, I I have been a long time student of Shinzen who always uh, at least my recollection of it is uh, that he presented himself as a Vipassana teacher but when you really break down the techniques he uses it's from the full range of the the main lineages of Theravada Zen and uh, Vajrayana. Um, and I think that he likes that secularized, uh, he used to call it uh, toe, theory of everything model for meditation. Um, and uh, I think we differ there because I've always liked the associations with the traditions and um, because if something catches my attention, I want to have the signpost that will allow me to investigate it. And when it's uh, completely secularized, it's, it, it, it's uh, harder to uh, figure that out. I know uh, for um, probably 15 years, I was mainly involved in his community and um, had no understanding at all that it, that it was this collection of, of pieces from all of the main lineages until I got out into the world where things were framed in a more traditional way. So then, when you look at the development of uh, secure uh, attachment, uh, infants move through these stages. The first stage is really an, uh, what we would call an auto-regulating stage, where the infant is really self-involved and self-regulating. Um, mainly, we, we think that it happens because the brain isn't really developed enough for the infant to be able to discern uh, self and other and really much beyond an instinctual response. And then in between five and eight months, the brain develops enough that there's an awareness of other people. Uh, if you've ever been around infants that are younger than that, they don't really care who's taking care of them. And all of a sudden, they care very much who's taking care of them. And they really uh, get focused on one particular uh, person. You could hold a baby in that state as long as they could see the person that they attached to they would sit comfortably in their lap, but if you turned them around and they looked at you, they'd suddenly be frightened and need to be comforted. So at that point, the, the, the infant turns their attention to someone else and uses somebody else as the primary means of emotional regulation, which we call an externally 
a regulating stance. And if the person comes reliably enough, they shift from a dependency on an external source of regulating to a collaborative experience of regulating with someone else. And that is that they're in, they take in the instruction of the regulator and begin to develop the capacity to regulate themselves, uh, developing a, a series of emotional regulation strategies which are associated to particular states that they get into. And uh, when they develop the capacity to regulate enough experiences that they have uh, with these emotional regulation strategies, but then they actually begin to explore in a, in a wider way because they have the capacity to regulate themselves long enough to explore. And if they don't have that experience, uh, they curtail their exploration. So we have these three main um, modes of secure functioning. We have the attachment system itself that when it activates causes you to seek protection and comfort from somebody who you know will take care of you. And when the attachment system is activated, the exploration system is deactivated. Uh, when you're comforted and settled, the attachment system deactivates and the exploration system activates, which is the thing that propels you out into the world to discover the things that are interesting for you to know. And the more that we can orient toward really exploring the things that the activity, the doingness of it is the thing that provides the meaning, the richer the experience is. There is a secondary kind of exploration where we really pursue um, resources, time, energy, and resources so we can contract the things that we want. But primary exploration is the, the activity itself is what provides the meaning. And then the third one is the collaborative capacity. In the experience of an infant, if you have a good enough caregiver who's sensitive enough to, who reflects back to a, a, a pretty good version of yourself uh, that uh, instills in you a sense of confidence, then you can go out into the world and discover the things that you need to know to find a meaning. If you don't have that, uh, then uh, there's restrictions that happen along the way. The collaborative system of being in relationship to other people and in relationship to the world really uh, is the domain of secure functioning people because it's something that you learn uh, in that early dyadic relationship. You can learn it later, but you'd have to be able to recognize that you don't have the experience of So that when we come to the question of uh, how to use meditation to do this, we really begin with this um, pulling apart of the sensing experience into the individual strands of information that we use to weave together into the experience of conceptual reality. So it's the sensing experience the database, what's in the database, and how that defines what the experience is that we create. 
um, what these meanings are to us, what these uh, capacities are. One of the things that happens early in practice is we begin to see that the creation of conceptual reality is extremely uh, changeable. That depending on uh, how we're feeling, the energy level we have, how the mind is, uh, can greatly affect the experience that we uh, create. Um, we're very Western, most of us, very Aristotelian in our understanding of this. And you can easily think that because you see it, uh, you take in an accurate representation of that and create this internal model that you operate from. And so what we want uh, you to begin to see in this process, and th that's why the function of mind is so interesting, is that you don't do a complete survey of everything that's in front of you. You do this cherry picking of things that are interesting to you in the moment. And from that highly curated selection of sensing data points, you create the experience of what's in front of you. Um, one example is, have you ever look, uh, uh, looked for your keys and found them in a place that you've already looked twice? So then you have the experience of having created that experience without the keys in it twice before you allowed the mind to create it with the keys in it. Um, so we begin this process of really paying attention to this unrestricted movement of mind and what it looks at if you're seeing and the eyes are open. Um, if they're not open and you're uh, sitting um, with the body, it's the same process of selection. Which sensations in the body is your attention drawn to as you collect this string of experiences that you then change into the experience that you're having. Uh, is the body painful? And does that then create the perception that it's an unpleasant experience to be meditating? Or is the mind scattered? Does that create an experience that actually this is not a good period of meditation because the mind is scattered? We develop the capacity then for equanimity that doesn't matter whether the mind is scattered or not, as long as you continue to meditate. That you begin to understand that concentration comes and goes. You can develop a, a tremendous capacity for concentration, but it's not reliable because the conditions are always different. So you have to uh, adapt to each moment of sitting the way that it is. Um, so that's the beginning part of this uh, process of developing the capacity to mentalize uh, is just uh, tracking the sense ex experiences, tracking the activity of mind and what it selects, and then, and then understanding that that raw sensing data is compared to a database that has meaning it is then assigned to the experience of the present moment and conceptual reality is 
uh, created. Then what we really want to begin to do is understand the quality of that database. If <clears throat> so, one of the experiences that I have in working with people with attachment is that preoccupied people do not typically have the experience or much experience with delight. What that means is that they had a childhood where nobody mirrored back to them a sense that they were delightful. Uh, it's not really a currency in the dynamic between a, a preoccupied caregiver and a, and a child in their care. Christian? Oh, not muted. Um, You're muted somehow, or what's going on? Let's make sure. Wait, go ahead. Uh, can you hear me now? I can hear you. Okay. Uh, I'm curious because like if preoccupied people tend to, they kind of form their puzzle piece with avoidant people and avoidant people use like seduction to kind of get what they want. Are the avoidant people using a like delight or is it kind of something, would you think of it as something else to kind of, I guess, bowl over the preoccupied person? Am I even, I don't know if I'm thinking about this in a way that makes sense. Sure. Preoccupied people don't usually trade on delight, they trade on helplessness. So a preoccupied person would present themselves as helpless to a dismissing person, and the dismissing person would get, engage in helping them. Um, Neither is particularly authentic. So the preoccupied person presents an inauthentic presentation of helplessness to a dismissing person who then, in a grandiose way, helps them. So that the dismissing person is inflating themselves on the idea that they're the white knight and then they can come in and rescue the, the uh, damsel or what's the male version of a damsel? Uh, <laughs> Mr. Damsel. <laughs> I'll, I'll think about that. I'll give you a better answer. Um, they can rescue them. It inflates the sense of the dismissing person's um, self. And because the goal of the uh, preoccupied person is not to be helped, is not to be helped because they're typically not helpless, it doesn't matter that the help that the dismissing person provides is not real. They just want proximity. So the preoccupied person gets the proximity to the uh, fig uh, attachment figure that they want, and the dismissing person gets the inflation uh, of helping where no help is actually required. <laughs> You're following me? The, the, the dismissing person is not actually helping, but it doesn't matter because the preoccupied person is not actually helpless. That's not what's actually happening. What's happening is that the preoccupied person wants physical proximity to the dismissing person. And the dismissing person will allow that um, because they have the sense of grandiosity and being 
the helper. Then once the dismissing person feels that the preoccupied person is really hooked, they begin to withdraw so that the preoccupied person is in the pursuing of proximity and the, the dismissing person is reassured that they won't be abandoned because they're at being actively pursued. And that's the dynamic that makes that connection stable. As long as the dismissing person withdraws enough and is pursued enough, they feel safe and they feel stable in the relationship. And as long as the, the uh, dismissing person allows enough proximity for the preoccupied person, they, the preoccupied person feels that they have the proximity that they need. And so if, uh, if, you know, if that functions well, it's pretty stable. It's not intimate, but it's pretty stable. It's only when the, the, the dismissing person withdraws too much or the preoccupied person gets fed up with always having to pursue that it, it becomes unstable. And then the dismissing person usually allows the closeness that the preoccupied person wants until they feel that it's, it's going back to normal and then they withdraw again. But there's not delight in, it, in that equation the way that we typically think of it. Delight is not based on what you're doing. It's just the beingness of the person. You see, you have this sense of delight in, in their beingness without them having to do something uh, to earn it. <clears throat> Um, dismissing people also understand delight, but they understand it as a currency uh, for transaction rather than uh, just something that's a spontaneous expression. And the reason for that is that they, they were in a position of having to idealize their parents. That is to say, they were in a position where they had to delight in their parents' care for them, even though they knew that it was a performance and it wasn't real. So in order to get a dismissing uh, parent to respond, you have to, you have to delight in them. So you delight in them, but it's not a spontaneous reaction to them. It's an obligation for care. So that's also different than that, just that spontaneousness. Um, you know, uh, anxious avoidant kids who grow up to be dismissing uh, have caregivers who don't attend to them consistently. And so they, the authentic expression, um, if you remember earlier in this talk, uh, that spontaneous expression, that authentic expression that is then understood by the caregiver mirrored back to him and then results in actual appropriate care being delivered creates in the secure person a sense that they have an effect on the world that that's helpful to them, that they can affect the world in a way that will get their needs met. But a dismissing pers uh, person doesn't have that belief. They don't think that an authentic expression is the way to go. Um, uh, 
One of the things that I think it's really useful to begin to understand is that sense of self that we have comes from a reflection from other people, initially from our caregivers. And depending on how they reflected that to us, that's the, the basis of this understanding of ourselves. And so part of this uh, work is also to touch into that natural innocence of your child self so that you can begin to understand really what the authentic experiences were, the authentic preferences were, the, the authentic things uh, that you're good at doing so that you can begin to organize your life in such a way that that's what you're doing so that you can derive meaning from it. One of the difficulties in our culture, of course, is that uh, everything is so unequal. Uh, some things are remunerated in a fantastic way and some things are not uh, remunerated. But that doesn't matter in terms of what's authentically meaningful to you, what the societal valuations are. Because we want to really come into a place where the things that matter to us that we derive meaning from are the things that we're engaged in uh, and at the same time, we do need to support our autonomy and our self-sufficiency, but uh, it isn't, uh, uh, the gauge should not be whether you're uh, remunerated, it should be whether it has meaning. Secondary exploration is where you're just pursuing the remuneration or this power or social status so that you can transact what you want. But in intimate relationships, it's to understand uh, authentically uh, who you are and what uh, uh, all of this means to you and then being uh, able to express it to people that have demonstrated uh, their trustworthiness. Make sense? So then, um, I thought tonight that we could do some Vipassana meditation, really uh, going through Shinzen's uh, see, hear, feel, and then moving into the focus in, focus out, because this is uh, such a fantastic way to begin to develop mentalizing capacity, being able to track each of these different um, sensing experiences uh, in real time as they're happening. Uh, and uh, see if you can follow that. Uh, if we looked at the the uh, development of uh, insight, this would really be the the first two stages. One is that you have sensory clarity about the activations, and then the second is that you understand the meaning that you're assigning to them. So the sensing experience is one thing, and what you understand them to be is a second thing. Is that making sense? Um, so go ahead and take your meditation posture. We'll do a little bit of concentration at the beginning just to settle the mind. So any comments or questions about what we just did? Kristen? 
I, I came late, so I don't know if you talked about this, but I'm curious about the sort of longer term purpose of getting this clarity between the feeling of um, the, the feeling of the sensation and then like how we more conceptually feel about it. Um, um, sometimes uh, a particular sensation can uh, create a, a, a predictable response. So the quality of the sensing experience can create a predictable response uh, in the conceptual form formulation around it. So uh, an example might be pain. Uh, and then uh, the experience of conceptual reality uh, has a strong aversive quality to the experience of it. But actually, it's not the conditions of the present moment that are causing it. It's the, sen the sensation the aspect of the unpleasantness of the sensation. When you talk about it in relationship to trauma responses or something like that, it doesn't have to be necessarily an unpleasant sensation that can uh, cause that formulation. But uh, if there's, a, say, sexual abuse and uh, there's an association of uh, uh, unpleasantness with uh, the sensation um, in the mind, uh, that's uh, from the past, then you have the experience in the present moment of that, but the formulation around it is uh, unpleasant or aversive. So we want to begin to uh, be able to separate those as a way of, uh, of recovering, uh, in a sense, our experience of the present moment. Um, so that, you know, there's a, often a link between how we're uh, perceiving the sensation experience and uh, the formulation of it. And so we want to see that clearly so that we can uh, be free of the uh, of uh, afflictive formulations. And it, it says in the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, that the aspects of uh, Vedna, um, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, um, you have the sensing experience, but you also have pressure. So we're also looking at that aspect of it. Um, it's, it's really just helping. I was thinking during the meditation that one of the things about the esoteric practices of uh, the bond tradition, which I studied with Dan uh, in the six lamps practices. What you're looking for is opening to the sense of sacredness in all experiences in all formulations. Um, and I was thinking about that in relationship to the uh, natural innocence of that uh, child self uh, and linking the two that if you touched into that experience of yourself and it was reflected to you as this delightful sacred uh, experience then what you would be looking for in people are people who reflect that back to you one of the reasons why we orient ourselves toward people who tend to be uh, similar to the kinds of experiences that we uh, grew up with is because 
we're looking for the reflection that we recognize as ourselves and in some sense we can feel seen if they reflect back to us that distorted perspective whereas if we haven't investigated who we actually are and understand that to be different than what that distorted reflection was we look for that experience being reflected back to us so we do need to be able to touch into that experience and part of it is going to be separating that that stuff all out so that you really can see clearly that uh, extraordinary natural innocence and then look for people who reflect that back to you not the distortions of the misperceptions of the early uh, caregiver interactions make sense yeah it's really helpful good so thanks uh for coming um we have not this saturday but the following saturday the i love you keep going day long on um, collaborative relationship systems uh, we're starting a level two another level two in uh, september so take a look at that we have uh, the last of the seven circles retreats uh, in october seven circles is closing that's uh, another casualty of covid um, and then uh, uh, we'll see what we do. <laughs> I might also want to do shorter uh, retreats that are not necessarily silent in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so I haven't quite figured that out yet. Um, we are looking to put together a three-week trip to Asia in September, uh, sorry, in February, I think we'll probably go to Vietnam and uh, sit in a monastery there for uh, 10 days and then do some travel on either side of it. Uh, I think that's about everything that's coming up. Anyway, it's on the website. Oh, I know, we're, we're doing a uh, level one uh, for Central European time in November. And then we're going to do a level two in European, Central European time this winter. And then I'm going to do a, a retreat in Utrecht, an in-person retreat in Utrecht in the spring. I think the first week of June. So that's what's coming up. Uh, thank, thank you for coming. I do, Carol? Yeah, I'm just wondering, where is Utrecht? It's about... 30 minutes south of Amsterdam on a bullet train. <laughs> so it's in the Netherlands? It is. Uh-huh. It's lovely there. Sounds cool. Um, anyway, um, thank you for coming. Thank you for your practice. Um, I offer the teaching on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. I'm, I know that you know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's a link on the website. Any amount is appreciated. Uh, helps support me and also the work that we're doing. And uh, I hope to see you soon somewhere along the way. Bye now. <laughs>